All right, well, good morning. You are going to want your Bible this morning, and uh, as Rob said, it's what we do at Grace. We worship together, we open God's Word, and then we respond, see what He is, how He's shaping and forming us and sending us into the week with Him. And so if you need a Bible, we have plenty of Bibles. Lots of people walk around, just slip up a hand, and they will make sure that we get a Bible in your hand. Uh, But otherwise, turn to Genesis chapter 4 is where we are going to be this morning. Genesis chapter 4. And as you are uh, finding your way to Genesis 4, what we'll find is that uh, there's some, cr- some teaching that has sort of crept into the church over the last probably 20, 30 years that basically divorces the Old Testament from the New. The Old Testament is sort of this irrelevant book. Once Jesus came, all that is said and done. We're in a totally new era. And, you know, it's uh, old words for an old time that have nothing to do with us. And a lot of that comes out of some of the uncomfortable nature of some of the things that happened in the Old Testament. Um, But what I want us to see as we dive in, as we're going through this book together, is that every chapter in the Old Testament is pointing forward to God's grace ultimately revealed in Jesus. That, that is not that there was this God of the Old Testament and then Jesus came and now we have a God of the New Testament. No, it's the same God from beginning to end. It's the same story from beginning to end. And there are hints, there are foreshadows, there are promises from the first chapter of the Bible all the way through that point forward to Jesus. And then once culminating in the person of Christ, the, the visible representation of an invisible God, the one in whom God fully dwelled, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, Jesus. The rest of the Bible, the rest of the New Testament, points back to Jesus. It's all about him. And it's this story that we find ourselves in even 2,000 years later. And so we said from the beginning that as we found, we are starting a new season here at Grace and, uh, and new ministry opportunities and new engagement in the neighborhoods and, and new opportunities to, to, uh, to impact our community, to, to transform this city, to make disciples, to reach the next generation, that we wanted to go back to the beginning of our story, to remember the roots of where we came from, and really asking this question, God, what is this life that you created us to live? What is this life you created us to live? And so we see in Genesis 1 and 2, hopefully by the end of the series, you will know Genesis really well. If you've been coming for the last few weeks, we have, we have told this story over and over again, but I, we, we've got to get it. Let, it. let it saturate your bones and impact the way you see yourself in the world. But Genesis 1 and 2, a good God who created humanity to represent him, gave them identity, those made in the image of God, brought them into relationship, perfect harmony, intimacy, vulnerability with one another, fully known, fully loved. In that relationship, then gave them responsibility, calling, destiny, purpose, meaning, steward this good world that I've made. Take my goodness, my kingdom, from this Garden of Eden out to the ends of the earth. Walk with me. Talk with me. Know me. Unpack the incredible potential of this world that I've made, God says. Genesis 3, where we spent the last couple of weeks, we see mankind confronted with this decision. A God who declares, 
I love you. I love you. I want the best for you. I am with you. I am for you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will give you what you need. I love you. Asks a question, gives them a choice. Will you trust me? And we see in Genesis 3 the consequences of that decision to say no to God's great question. Will you trust me? And in turning their back on the creator, the author of life, into the world comes death. Separation from God. They turn their, away from God and then they turn against one another. And into the world, this good, beautiful, potential-packed world comes sin, fear, loss, suffering, shame, guilt, hiding, blame. The tearing apart of this fabric of relationship that God created for us to flourish within. That's the first three chapters. And then we watch from this point forward as that pain and consequence of sin continues to sort of roll out, to expand from not just simply impacting mankind's relationship with God and impacting them as individuals together, but now we will see it impact the family and from the family out to the rest of society and culture. And yet, as depressing as that aspect of the story sounds, we also see God's grace consistently showing up over and over and over again. So it's a familiar story, the story of Cain and Abel. And I, I would encourage you to read it and ask God for maybe some fresh perspective. In fact, um, for me, as diving into this, this uh, story the, over the last couple of weeks of just trying to figure out, okay, God, what is it you're wanting us to know? Like, how does this speak into our world today? There is so much depth in this story. And I'm going to try to just pull out some of what I think are some of the main points that, uh, that God is wanting in his word for us to get as his people to apply into our lives. But I encourage you, and I say this all the time, but as way more important than anything that I could have to say from up here is what God is wanting to say to you as you dive into the word for yourself. So dive into this story. And I'm also going to give you this little teaser because I'm not going to really get into this because I just don't have the time or the space this morning. But as you like, dive into this, God's word this week and, and read Genesis 4 and asking those two questions that we say all the time. All right, God, what do you want me to know here? And then what do you want me to do with this? Like, if you want to just walk with Jesus in a healthy way, just keep asking those two questions. All right, Lord, what do you want me to know here? And what do you want me to do with that, right? And so uh, as you dive into Genesis 4, I encourage you, go back to Genesis 3. Because what struck me is the incredible consistent parallels between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. It's basically the retelling of the same story, but instead of it just simply being the cost and the consequence of, of mankind with God, we now are faced with the cost and the consequence of mankind with one another. So I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm just going to read the story and then we'll go back and kind of see what God might be saying out of it. Adam and Eve have been driven out of the Garden of, the Eden, of Eden, moved to the east, 
God has set up a cherubim and a flaming sword to cut off the way to the tree of life. And now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten or acquired a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard or accepted uh, Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well or you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well or do what is right, sin is crouching and literally crouching like a beast at the door. And its desire is for you. It's grasping after you. But you must rule over or master it. Now Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength, and you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And so Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, the land of wandering, east of Eden. Kind of a sad tale. To be honest, as a a dad of two boys, it actually makes me feel pretty good about my parenting. Because my boys can go after each other, but so far, one of them hasn't talked the other one into going out into the field and then struck him to the ground. It's a sad story. It's a story of how our failure to connect, to hear from God, how the sin of mankind is now tearing apart the most basic unit of society with a family. Now, let's start with a note of grace. We're called grace for a reason. It's what we live under, but it's right here in the very beginning. In, uh, in, four, in, in the verse 1, that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten or acquired a man with the help of the Lord. There's two things there that I think are actually really beautiful. One is later, earlier in chapter 3. In the midst of death, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the reality that childbearing will now bring grief and, and suffering and pain because death is a possibility. In the midst of the toil of the world, Adam still looks at his wife 
and calls her Eve. And the verse explicitly says, because you will be the mother of all the living. I love that the Bible included that. That in the middle of all the death, there is still the hope for life. And sure enough, this identity that she's meant to carry, the one who is going to bring life into the world, God fulfills that here in the first chapter. And she gives birth to this son, Cain. Now, in the Bible, this is important to note, is that names weren't simply just sort of what you were called, what you were known as, what goes on a birth certificate so you can put it at the top of your paper in school. But the name carried with it a sense of, of essence, identity. It actually carried with it a, a, a hope for the future. It told your story. And the, and the idea of biblical names is, is that you were either going to live into this name in a positive way and flourish with God, or you're going to live into this name in a negative way, apart from God. And so Cain's name is, is, is deeply significant. Because Cain means, or Cain, is the root word of what uh, Eve says when she says that, with the help of the Lord, I have acquired a man. Now, some of your translations, actually, I like the way it translates it. It says, uh, have acquired a man-child. Which I've, lot of, I've met a lot of men who are, I think, more uh, man-child than man. I've also held some babies, gargantuan, that I've thought, now this is a man-child. Now, I think there's a play on that uh, Adam standing there as Eve is brought to him and says, now this is woman made from man. And now Eve, with this child that she has just birthed, is now saying, this is now man that has come from woman. That's her child that she's acquired from God. With the help of the Lord. So the grace of God and this identity that Eve is to carry to bring life into a world of death that God fulfills through her. He is faithful to what he has called her to do. But also, it's interesting, is that the first person to call God by their covenant name, Yahweh, is Eve. I never realized that before. I mean, Yahweh shows up in Genesis chapter 2, and, and there's this principle called the principle of the first mention, and that is the first place that a word shows up in the Bible that you can get a sense of the significance for the rest of Scripture by the context of its first mention. And the first mention of Yahweh, the covenant God, uh, the co covenant name of God, that he's not just a God of the cosmos, not just a God of power, but a God of presence, a personal, available, near God who sees and hears and knows his people, is when God, Yahweh, is forming man out of the dust of the earth. It's this intimate act of creation. But it's actually Eve, the one who, remember, was the, first took the fruit, first fell away, first answered this question, will you trust me with a no, that still is able to call God by name. The God who sees her, who knows her, who is with her. So what does that have to do with us? This isn't just an ancient story. It's a story we find ourselves in. I know some of your stories. I don't know all of any of your stories. But God does. The places of failure, the places of pain, the things that you look back on your life and that grasping for fruit, that, that thing you did that immediately after you took that bite, you go, what was I thinking? As words come out of your mouth and you're wishing you could reel them back in. At seasons and chapters of your life where you wandered so far away that you wondered, does, does God even, can God even look at me, much less let me into his presence? 
In the same place that Eve must have found herself after she failed so miserably in such an incredible place, in such intimacy with God, and looked at the pain that she had brought into this world by turning her back on the one that faithfully loved her. And yet God still showed up for her. Whatever your story is, whatever your regrets and your guilt, your shame, the baggage that you carry, God still shows up. And his desire, just like it was with Eve, is that you would know him. That you would know him. So Cain's name, or Cain, in the Hebrew, means to acquire, to get, to possess, to bring forth. And in the positive sense of this name, who Cain was created by God to be, to live into this identity, would to recognize, just as Eve did, that what Cain is able to get, to acquire, to accomplish in life, comes by the presence of God in his life, by the help of the Lord with him. Now, if Cain is going to live into a negative sense of his identity, and we'll obviously see in the story which path he chooses, it is that it is up to him to acquire for himself, to get, to achieve, to accomplish, apart from God. And sometimes, maybe God is available to help. And what we realize, or what we see, is that what Cain thinks about his identity will determine how he lives into his calling. In other words, how Cain takes that sense of his name will determine his destiny. Is it up to him to make life work, to acquire what he needs, and God may sometimes help? Or is it up to God to acquire what Cain needs, and Cain shows up with God? It's a subtle difference in the question, but the implications are massive, and it's the same for us. Do we approach life from the sense that it is up to us to figure it out and make life work, and sometimes God shows up and helps? Or it is God who is making life work. It is his plan, his agenda, and we show up in what he is already doing. It's the difference simply in this. God, here is my agenda. Here are my goals. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I want to accomplish. This is our calendar for the year. This is our schedule for the, for, the, for the retreat. This is our agenda for the meeting. God, this is what we're going to do. Oh, God, will you bless that? I don't know if anyone else has prayed that way. But if I'm honest, a whole lot of my prayers are from that posture. God, this is what I'm going to do because it's up to me to acquire, to make it happen. It'd be nice if you showed up because I could use some help. Or, God, you're the one in charge, at work, moving, active. It's your agenda, your plans, your purposes. God, how do I fit into that? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? And we get a hint of how Cain is thinking about his relationship with God, which comes from the way that he, which affects the way that he views himself in even this offering that he makes. 
Ironically, the first religious act of the Bible is done by Cain, who becomes this notorious uh, synonym for wickedness. And I think since the time of Cain, throughout the Bible and throughout all of history, there's a whole lot of religious acts that have been done that aren't done from a place of authentic worship or faith or love. And maybe in our own lives, we can look at ways that we show up and we do the religious act. We, do the, we give the offering, but our hearts are far from God. And it has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with us. Because you see, for Cain, if it's up to him to make life work and God is merely a tool, a means to an end that can help him get there, then it's not an offering that he's giving. It's a bribe. God, I need you. And so here's some fruit. Maybe it'll appease you. Now, Abel, it says that when he gives this offering, and it specifies that the offering he's giving, he's giving from the, same, the work of his hands. It's the same thing Cain is doing. But the offering that he's giving is not, not some. He's not buying God's favor. It's his best. It's his first. It's an act of faith. In fact, Hebrews 11.1 1 makes it explicit. That by faith, Abel, or Hebrews 11.3, I'm sorry. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. How? Because if Abel is dependent on God for his life to work, to get what he needs that it makes sense that he would give to God the very first and the very best. Because in faith, he is trusting God to provide the rest. But if it's up to Cain to make his life work, to make sure he gets what he needs, then who is going to keep the best and the first? Cain, right? Because it's up to him. God may or may not show up. God may or may not be faithful. God may or may not come through, so I better keep the first and the best of my crop. And God, here's a little bit. It'd be nice if you'd show up to help a little bit. I don't know if this applies to anyone else in the room. With the way we think about our resources, our time, our energy, our gifts, our sacrifices... Do we approach God as giving him a little bit in the hopes that he shows up for us? Or do we approach God from the posture of, God, I'm going to give you my first and my best because I'm going to trust that you're going to provide the rest. And this is the whole point of the tithes. Now, don't worry, we're not getting into a tithe sermon. God doesn't need either one of their offerings. He's not sitting around going, man, I am starving. I could sure use some fruit and some barbecue. Oh, thank you, Cain and Abel. You showed up just in time. It's not about the offering. It's about the heart of his children. And in the same way, as we give to God and the posture of, of our giving, the idea of the first fruit is this idea that, God, I'm going to give you the first of what I receive because I'm, in doing so, I'm setting my heart in faith on the foundation that you will provide for me the rest of what I need. But I think most, 
of us, including myself, a whole lot of the time. Make sure that I'm taken care of first. And if there's anything left, I'll throw a little bit towards others and to God in a sacrificial way. It's not about the offering. It's about the condition of our hearts. And so, of course, if it's not an offering but a bribe, it makes sense that God would say, show up to Cain. And I love this, that God shows up. I mean, even that as an act of grace. That God would say to Cain, that, or it would say that he doesn't have any regard for it. He doesn't accept Cain's offering. He doesn't need it. He's not going to be bribed. He wants Cain's heart. And so he comes to Cain and he says, like, why are you upset? I want your heart. I want you. I want you to trust me. If you do what is right, if you do what is acceptable, will you not be lifted up? But listen, Cain, if you keep walking down this path where you're convinced that I am not going to show up, that I'm not faithful, that I'm not good, and therefore you're convinced that you're in charge, that it's up to you, that you're alone, if you keep walking that path, there's a beast crouching at your door waiting to devour you. That language there is actually exactly parallel to what God says to Eve. That your desire, your grasping will be for your husband and your husband will overpower, will master you. It, it's, it is the, the turmoil and the anguish, the, the tearing apart of the fabric of this intimacy between husband and wife. But it's still an external reality. At this point, sin isn't just this thing out there. It's not the serpent that shows up next to us. At this, Adam opened the, the door for sin, and now sin has moved in. Now the battle isn't between, simply between Adam and Eve. The battle is between Cain and himself. Sin is now the present reality. As James 4 says, that it's our own desires that are war within us. James 1, that we are tempted by our own desires. Desires give birth to sin, and sin fully conceived gives birth to death. And the same is true for us. And so Cain has an option here, as we do. Will we recognize our own brokenness, the lies that we've believed, the sin that is waiting to devour and turn to God in faith and repentance? Or will we keep running down a path that leads to our destruction? Cain, still convinced that it's up to him to acquire, to make life work. And in that posture of scarcity and striving, Abel is no longer a brother. Abel's a threat. Because if Abel is getting what Cain is not getting, then the only way for Cain to ensure that he gets what he thinks that he needs is to get rid of the competition. And so he takes Abel out into the field and strikes his own brother down. And again, in the middle of the mess, God shows up. Can you believe that for yourself? That in the middle of your most broken, shameful, hurting, 
scared, rebellious moments, your worst decisions, that God's not running away from you, but that God's walking towards you. And so Cain says to his brother, I mean, sorry, God says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Again, similar to the question that God asked Adam. It's not that God doesn't know where Abel is. It's an opportunity for Cain to be honest. And unlike Adam, who at least gave some semblance of truth, Cain just straight up lies. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the callousness of Cain's heart that turned him away from God, turned him against his brother, now doesn't even see the consequence of his own brokenness. And these four words, or in the Hebrew four words, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground actually set into place the entire theology of the rest of the Old Testament. That life is in the blood. So the shedding of blood is the most polluting of all substances. That blood must be atoned for. That without blood, there is no forgiveness. That Abel's blood is pictured as crying to God for vengeance. That word cry is used throughout the Old Testament. It's the cry of desperate men without food in Genesis 41. It's the cry of those expecting to die in Exodus 14. It's the cry of those oppressed by their enemies in Judges 4. It's the, it's the scream for help of a woman being attacked in Deuteronomy 22. It's the plea to God of the victims of injustice in Exodus 22. But over and over again throughout the Old, Old Testament, the cry, the scream... The plea, what we find is that God hears the cries of his people. So maybe you've been on one side of this story, the side of the offender who has turned your back against God and destroyed relationships in the process. Maybe you've been on the other side of the story where other people's actions have caused pain and turmoil and hurt, maybe even violence in your own life. Whatever the side of the story you find yourself on, and for many of us, we find ourselves on both sides of the story. Again, God shows up. Now, there are consequences for Cain. That he's driven away, the the ground now turns against him. At least for Adam, the curse was on the ground, but eventually that ground would yield fruit. But for Cain, the ground will not even yield a harvest. He's on his own. He's alone. And when Cain recognizes, maybe for the first time, the cost of his choices to demand life on his own terms, he turns to God and he says, it is more than I can bear. And again, grace. That in the aftermath of what is one of the most horrific acts in all of Scripture, the killing of his brother, God still offers a covering and a protection for Cain. It doesn't make any sense. 
And actually, if you have any sort of bent towards justice, it probably strikes you and like, rubs you the wrong way. Like, this is not what Cain deserves. Cain just killed his brother. Cain just took what Adam and Eve did and made it a hundred times worse. Cain took what was sin that was a threat out here and moved it right inside of here for all of us from this point forward. Cain took what was kind of a tearing apart of relationship and has destroyed a family. Cain deserves to be punished. Now, there are consequences. Cain demanded to live life on his own terms, and what do we find? Cain being driven, wandering alone in exile, living life on his own terms. He gets what he asked for. That's sort of how God works. And yet, in the midst of it, God extends mercy. Now, if we bring that home, and we actually are honest with our own choices and failures and decisions, the ways that we have wounded others and our wrong responses to the ways that we've been wounded, we don't really want God to give us what we deserve, do we? It's actually good news for us that Cain was on the receiving end of God's grace. And what we find, again, pointing to Jesus, is that one day, God would shed his own blood to cover the sin of mankind and to restore relationship first with him and then reconciliation with one another. That he would reverse the curse of Cain. That God is restoring all things. And in Hebrews 12, the author writes, To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does the blood of Abel speak? Vengeance, division, alienation, isolation, wandering, pain. But where the blood of Abel speaks vengeance, the blood of Jesus speaks mercy. Where the blood of Abel speaks division, the blood of Jesus speaks reconciliation. Where the blood of Abel speaks alienation, the blood of Jesus speaks adoption. Where the blood of Abel speaks isolation, the blood of Jesus speaks belonging. Where the blood of Abel speaks wandering, the blood of Jesus speaks a word that we are now found. And if it's the fear and insecurity of Cain that destroyed relationship, it's the blood of Jesus that can set us free. That in Christ, God is reforming for himself what it means to truly be family. And it's here that Cain's question to God actually speaks powerfully into our lives. As God is restoring us back into relationship with himself, adopting us as sons and daughters, restoring our hearts and our souls, rooting us in his love. That question of denial and deceit actually becomes a question of invitation. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? 
And in Jesus, the answer is yes. Yes. The reality is, is that I can't give what I don't have. And so if I'm asked to love you, if I'm asked to provide for you, if I'm asked to sacrifice for you, if I'm asked to, to bear with you in your pain, if I'm asked to, to stand with you, if I'm asked to, to, to encourage you, but I myself am in a place of, of fear and, and insecurity, if I'm at a loss, if I'm wounded, if I'm hurting, if I'm struggling, then I don't have anything to give you. But if I'm invited into a relationship with a God who restores, who heals, who sets free, then from that place, I'm actually then able to love you out of what I've already been given. And I don't need to manipulate you to get something from you and because I'm already getting what I need. And so now I'm able to give to you from a posture of wholeness, of abundance. That was the whole idea of what it means to truly be family. That in Christ we're found first and then we, then we pour into one another in abundance because we're getting our needs met first from the God who sees us, who knows us, and who loves us. And so 1 John 3.11 says this, and listen to these words in this context. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 1, that we should love one another. And we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So what is the message of Cain? That Jesus shows up in our brokenness. Jesus meets us in our need. That Jesus is restoring us back to himself. And in doing so, Jesus is able to reconcile us to one another. That is the blood of Jesus that cries out from the ground a better word than the blood of Abel. So there are relationships that surround you that right now feel strained. There are relationships that maybe that you don't, you don't know how to love and how, what they're not working out the way that you'd want them to work, whether a marriage or a friendship or with a child or with a parent. The invitation of God through, and that we see in Genesis chapter 4 is to come first to him, to recognize our own brokenness, our own demands to make life work on our own terms, and to get what we need from God first. And then from that place, to enter back into relationship from a posture of healing and wholeness of freedom, not from fear and insecurity. And so we're going to worship together. We're going to take, we invite you to come and kneel to receive communion. But before you take communion, Paul warns us that we uh, take of the Lord's Supper 
first having examined our own hearts. If last week and again this week we examine our own hearts for the ways that we have turned our back on God or our individual relationships have gotten strained because, uh, because of our own selfish actions and behaviors. The invitation of communion today is how is God asking you, am I my brother's keeper? What would it look like to love one another from a posture, from a place of having been loved first? And so I'd encourage you, whether it's as families or as friends, as couples, maybe grab a, somebody that you came with and come and kneel together. And in that act, that posture of kneeling, to pray for one another and then to take communion together. Because in the taking of communion together, we recognize that it's the blood of Jesus that was shed for my sin that was also shed for yours. It's the blood of Jesus that sets me free that also sets you free. And it's the blood of Jesus that can bring wholeness and healing in the midst of my brokenness and my pain. We don't have to be defined by the curse of Cain any longer. What is God wanting to restore into you this morning? Let's pray. So Lord, I thank you that even in a story that is filled with so much pain and division, Lord, that you keep showing up. And so I pray that in our lives, in our world today, in places of conflict, where relationships feel strained or unhealed or hopeless, Lord, would you bring a, lot, a word of life and healing and hope? God, will you cleanse us, cover us by the blood of your son. Forgive us of our sins. Restore us back into relationship with you so that we can begin to learn what it means to be restored back into relationship with one another. God, we need you. We turn to you. Amen. So I encourage you as you worship just to come and kneel as families, as couples, as friends. Take communion together. Invite Jesus into that space, not just between you and him, but between you and one another.